Where we've been is we've been in the book of John, so if you've got your Bibles, uh, I invite you to open them. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. Feel free, stand up and go, go grab them. We won't make fun of you right now. Um, if you get up in the middle, then we'll make fun of you. Um, kidding. Uh, but if you want a Bible, I'd love for you to have one. Just so you know, at Cornerstone, we're very serious about the Word of God. We believe that the Bible is a, uh, isn't just any book. We believe it truly is what it says it is, is living and active. It's God-breathed. It, it was given to us by God so that we might know him and walk with him, and we might have clarity in a world that's lost and dying and falling apart. And so if, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. And it's why we teach the Bible the way we teach it. Um, we, we teach it unapologetically. Um, we hope we teach it with grace. But we also hope we teach it with passion, understanding that this message that's contained inside of this book is what everyone needs to know the Bible talks about in Second Peter for life and godliness, period. There's no other message underneath heaven but the one that's contained inside of the scriptures that helps us to know how it is we might understand the God of the universe and how we might walk with him. And so it's really important that if you're going to be a part of Cornerstone, uh, the Bible is not just a neat book that we bring. Uh, we believe the Bible is life-changing, that it was given to us that we might know Jesus Christ. And so that being said, um, one of the things that's going to probably catch you off guard is I'm not going to preach a particular passage today. Um, it's the passage on the woman caught in adultery. Now, a lot of times what happens is, and, and ever, I think everybody that ever has heard, you know, about, you know, be careful who you condemn will tell the story of the woman caught in adultery. But one of the things about this passage, and I've spent about the last three or four weeks really making sure before I decided not to teach it, is almost across the board, most biblical scholars right now, and I'm not talking like the liberal, you know, fringe guys that are out there. I'm actually talking very good, conservative, evangelical scholars. Don't believe that particular passage actually fits between in 753 to 811. They believe that what's happened, and for various reasons they believe this, is that it got added in at a later time. Because one of the things about the Bible is we believe that, that we, we understand it is it was originally the New Testament was written in Greek. And when it was written, it was compiled and pulled all together. And it was pulled together in about a three or four hundred year time span in which the books were, that were written, that were in it, were written in the, in the first century A.D. But there was that, that struggle within the church. What are the actual books that belong in the Bible? And so of any of the, the passages about John that are out there, we never find this passage on the woman caught in adultery before the fifth century. Never. All of the different texts we have, and we have almost 6,000 different texts that are either complete or partial of the Bible. By the way, that's incredible. The nearest particular historical text out there has 10. We have almost 6,000. If you want to know how accurate this book is, it is phenomenal. Now, we don't have the original manuscripts. We don't have the original books written anymore, but to be honest with you, I'm glad we don't. The church has been so renowned for history that whenever we have something, we worship it and miss the fact that we're not to worship it. It points to Jesus. And so with it, the reason that, that people believe that this doesn't fit is that, first of all, between 752 and 812, it kind of is a hiccup. It doesn't make sense. It kind of goes from one to the other, and, and it never is in there. The other thing is, is, is inside of the Greek language, it's a shift in Greek language. So it's, there's all kinds of different reasons why, and, and some of it's beyond us. We're going to have to trust some of these guys that have spent years and years studying this. But bottom line, 
people have, have almost agreed across the board that this particular text does not fit here. And so one of the things I don't want to do, I don't want to teach something that isn't here. Now, I do think it was an accurate account. I think it actually happened. But I think actually where this particular passage probably fits best is more like Luke 21 during the Passion Week of Jesus. That probably would be where it fit best. And so what we're going to do today is because just we do want to teach that as John intended it, as he wrote it, as the Spirit of God led him along, we're going to just teach 8.12 uh, uh, through 30. That's going to be the text we're going to focus on today. If you have any questions about it, um, you can just email the Bible College. Don't email me. Um, I'd be... No. If you have any questions on it, I'm going to send an email out just for you to be able to look at some of this stuff for yourself. Um, but in the end of it, I want you to know, I don't want you to in the back of your head think, well, no wonder it's in brackets in my Bible or it's a footnote. So therefore, is the Bible accurate? This book is amazing. The accuracy of this book is phenomenal. God has preserved this book. But sometimes inside of all the different translations, things do get kind of discombobulated. So that's one of those. But what I'd like you to do, could you please stand up? We're going to read uh, chapter 8, verse 12 through 30. I just want to read it out loud in just honor of God and honor of his word. And uh, then we'll, start, we'll dive in and st- start looking at what God has for us today. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father sent me, bears witness about me. They said to him, Wherefore, where is your your Father? Jesus answered them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. And you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, uh, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. God, I truly do believe that unless your spirit does a work here today in all of our lives, we are going to have the misfortune of leaving here without the capacity to change. And so today, would you please empower me? Would you allow me to speak on your behalf? Would you allow me to speak the words with clarity so that everyone can understand what it is this text is teaching so that we might live different and walk different? But God, also, would you open hearts? Would you open ears? Would you allow us to to hear this text, God, with all this stuff going on in our lives and all the thoughts that could go through our head? Would you keep us focused 
so that we might truly be changed by your word. I beg you, in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get going. Now, one of the things about this text that you're going to see in here is this idea of darkness. He talks about this idea that when we know him, when we follow him, that we're not in this thing that he's going to lay out for us called darkness. Now, all throughout, and this is really super important to understand, as my son would say to me, super is his favorite word, super important for you to understand, that this idea of light and darkness has been around for quite a while. It's been a part of the Old Testament, and it's been something that they passed into the New Testament. In other words, the people of Israel would have really understood when he was talking about light and darkness, he was talking about the way that God does things and the way that this world operates. And so when, he's, when he talks about this, you kind of almost have to go back to the Old Testament. So like in Proverbs 2, you'll see this. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, who is this, the most wise man that's ever walked this planet, one of the things that he said was, is that there are people out there that walk in the ways of darkness. Meaning there are people out there that walk according to how this world walks, not according to how God has called us to walk. And even at the very end of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes, he kind of follows it up again uh, towards the end of his life when he's kind of been there, done that. And he just said, literally, these people are just walking around in darkness. You also find it in Proverbs 4 when it talks about this darkness. It, the way that the writer of, uh, uh, that Solomon describes this in the book of Proverbs is that it's gloomy. It's kind of can't see the forest for the trees. And, and even the, the way he talks about it, those that don't know God don't even know they're stumbling, but they're just stumbling out there in this world because they don't know God. They're not in the light. Now, the way in which the Old Testament talked about it, kind of how we get into the light is that, number one, as we're in his word, as we're around his people, then in other words, there's a way in which the Old Testament helped us understand that you can walk in the light. And so he's going to bring that kind of a thing, especially when we get into the New Testament, this world that Jesus comes into, that when he came as God and enveloped himself in flesh, it talks about John 1.14, that he came into a world that was full of darkness. But the thing it says about Jesus, and even the way that it prophesied about Jesus in Luke 2 when they prophesied about him, is that he is a light of revelation, it says to the Gentiles. That this one that comes from above is a light that is broken into this world. And in fact, the way John talks about it in John 1, in verse 5, is he says that Jesus came for the specific purpose to shine into the darkness. It also talks about in John 1, 9, that because he's the true light, he came and he came to give it to everyone is the idea that, that John throws out to him. But even too, like in Matthew 4, Matthew writes down a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says that Isaiah prophesied that the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light, and on those who sit in the region and the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I mean, that's just a vivid picture of what it talks about Jesus coming into when it talks about this idea of these people that just dwell in the shadow of death. That means every single person out there that does not know God, that does not walk with God, and specifically now we're going to really start talking about how we know God through the person and work of Jesus they sit and are indwelt in and absolutely consumed by the shadow of death. That's who they are. But the good news about this is that when Jesus Christ left, he even said to these people, it is good for me to leave because when I leave, the Spirit of God is going to land upon these group of people called Christians and they are going to take this light all over the world. 
And so like in Acts 26, it says that the, the purpose of the church that, that Paul's talking about in this particular context is to open the eyes of people so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That means all of us in this room that know Jesus Christ, we have been called by God in a unique way to join Jesus in his mission of being light to a world, to a, to a world that lives in the shadow of death. Every single day that you go out there, we are unique and different. Those of us that know God, that have his Holy Spirit, we are now bearers of light into a lost and a dying world is the way they're talking about it. And please never, ever, ever forget what a privilege it is. You used to be in darkness, now you're in light. You used to be in death, and now you're in life. Everything got transformed the moment if you do, when you came to know Jesus Christ, or more importantly, when he called you and you came to know him, everything changed. I know for me on March 18th, 1993, and me on March 20th, 1993, something drastic happened where my whole world got flipped upside down on March 19th. I began to see the world different. I began to live different. My affections changed. Why? Because I encountered the God of the universe through the person of Jesus. And for those of you that know what I'm talking about, you know how different you were. And so what he's going to do now is, is you would think then that everyone would be so excited that the light has come into the world. But Jesus says, no, actually, there's a great paradox to this, that when the light came into the world, the world didn't want him because he revealed or he exposed their evil deeds. Now, it's not God coming into the world with arms crossed going, you idiots, your evil deeds. He's coming, Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he wanted them to know the evil deeds that, that have encompassed them as being a part of this world, living in the shadow of death, have separated them from God. And the reason he came in was the gospel good news. I have come so that you might have life and life like you've never known it. See, that's why I'm always saying to our church, please, if you're dour and sour, you need a little time with Jesus. We should be the most excited and joyful people on the planet, not because we're fake, but because Jesus has transformed us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's what this is about. Those that have truly now understood Jesus, we come to the light so people can see Jesus. We don't care anymore. And so this universal blindness that he's talking about, people, and I believe this, are just frantically searching for something. I think after a while, people kind of quit frantically searching. In fact, I just read a a uh, particular poll that they did recently, I think Baylor University did it, where basically Christ, or people inside of the United States, they've just stopped looking. They're no longer frantically searching. They've just did the whole, I give up. I'm done. And to those that are out there, that's what God has called us to do, to be his extension, to go out and proclaim Jesus Christ as buried and rose again, the life-transforming work of Jesus and so that's what he's going to be talking about today. John, if you remember, it's this old dude. He's looking around the world, and the world at that time is not different, much different from the world at our time. And he's just saying, my gosh, look at these countless people wandering around in darkness. And he almost has to come into the church and go, we got a job to do. This isn't a sit-down job. This isn't a pew job. This is us being the church to the world and calling all those that God has, has chosen back to him. All the lost sheep is the way that it's talked about inside of the, inside of the Gospels. And so what Jesus is going to do is that's kind of the premise of where he's going. 
Now, the, the thing we have to do, though, and a lot of times people take this particular passage out of context, meaning they, they misconstrue it because they don't understand the full meaning or all the historical significance of what goes on here. Now, if you look down at verse 20, it's going to tell us where Jesus is when he's doing these various things. It says, he spoke these in the treasury. Now, where's the treasury? Let me throw a map up real quick of the temple, kind of so you can see where the treasury is. If you look here, this is, a, this is a model that was built, that front end section before the temple. The temple is the large building in the background, but the courtyard that's right there, which is also called the courtyard of women, that particular, particular uh, courtyard was where the treasury was. That's where just thousands of people used to flock to it, especially all the time they would come in, because inside of that courtyard was where people gave their tithes. That's where they uh, uh, gave their, their kind of their free will offerings. They were, in fact, there were these things called, they called trumpets that were these big, massive uh, containers that looked like a trumpet, and they would put various offerings in there. And so where Jesus was going is he was going to a very crowded place. Now, you can see on the next one that it comes up, and I'll, it's kind of a, more of a, a drawing of it. That's kind of where it's at, that Jesus was going into. There would have been people from all over the place coming in there at that particular time. Now, here's what's important, though, about this particular time that he goes in there. And this is why it's important to connect 752 to 812. Is that if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that they were celebrating Sukkot, or they were celebrating this thing called the Feast of the Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember last week in the morning, they would all go down and they would do the jar and they would hold it up and, and Jesus had to break into the middle of that and go, I'm that water, that's me, that's what you've been thirsting for, come and drink. And remember he talked about it, it just would have been a burp in church the way he did that. Well, Jesus is the master all the time of getting where people are going to hear him. And so probably this was later in that afternoon or the next day, Jesus then finds where it's going to be the most crowded place and he comes into this particular courtyard and he's about ready to deliver this message about light. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is though, why was he talking about light? Now if you look at it, and I'm going to kind of go to the next slide. Oh, go to the next one. I left something out. Oh well. See those tall pillars in there? Everybody see those, those four tall pillars? Not only was there something important with the pouring of the water that was huge a part of Sukkot, but another thing that was really important were these four pillars, which was the illumination of the temple. It was in conjunction. One you would do in the morning and one you would do at night. And so what they would do is those poles, if you can see them, they would get high above even the temple gates. And every year they would go in there at this particular time and young men, priests at that particular time, they were able to would climb ladders and they would fill these 17-gallon vats that sat on top of these pools full of oil and they would actually then use old garments as wicks and they would sit in there and at nighttime they would light up these candelabras and they, in fact, the way that it talks about it, it shined all over Jerusalem and it would literally light up every single courtyard in Jerusalem. It's just a beautiful moment when they would light those up. Now, those lights, what they were for is they represented God's care and concern and the way that he took care of the people as he was the, if you remember, like from the Old Testament, as he was the fire and as he was the pillar of smoke and he guided his people around through the Exodus. That's what they would celebrate. It was their way of coming in and and being jubilant about God's protection and love and care of the people of Israel. The other thing that they would do that was kind of interesting to it, and I'm going to make sure that I read this because I found it in, in kind of one of the older, uh, older texts. It says that the, the tor- when the torches were lit, I love this, ignorant individuals or anybody who wished to participate 
uh, took no leading part in it. In other words, if you're an idiot, you don't get to participate. Only great Jewish scholars, heads of academies, members of the Sanhedrin, elders, men of piety and good deeds, listen to this, danced, clapped hands, made music, and entertained in the temple in the days of Sukkot. Everyone else, men and women, came to watch and listen. I would never buy a ticket for that one. A bunch of old men dancing around big candles. Yeah. But it was jubilant, and it was crazy the way they would go in there, and it was a celebration in a big way. That was what was taking place, and the key of all this is found like in Exodus 14, where it was describing the fact, the way that God, out of the fire and out of the pillar of smoke, would look down upon his people, and the place that it talks about that is specifically when God was getting ready to have his people cross the Red Sea. It says God was looking down out of the fire and down out of the pillar of smoke, and on one side of the fire and smoke, or, 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 on the one side of it, was the Egyptian army who was sitting there in darkness and chaos that were moving towards their destruction. But on the other side of it, God's people, as God looked down, was his care and concern and him delivering his people to safety. Now that's what all of that particular thing meant. And so Jesus boldly walks into this temple and this is what he does. He looks up at that light and I can just imagine him looking up there and pointing at it and saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What he was saying there that is so key had all kinds of Old Testament connotation to it. This is the second I am statement. He's already said, I am the bread, meaning I was the one that sustained you. I was the manna that kept you alive when you were in the desert. This is the second I am statement. Now he's saying, remember that fire that guided you? You remember God looking down at you and caring for you? Do you remember when the Egyptians were about to overtake you and I placed, the fire got placed between you and the Egyptians and the pillar got placed between you and the Egyptians? Do you remember when you walked across on dry land? Do you remember that at nighttime, even when I took you somewhere, that fire burnt bright so you never stumbled or never fell? Do you remember when it would move? I would always wait for you, but I would always call you and you would follow me. Do you remember that particular light? Do you remember that? That was me. That would have absolutely shocked everybody there. I can just imagine everybody going, what did he just say? What? Is he saying he's the light? Is he going to say it again? I don't think so. I mean, everybody would have just been sitting there going, what in the world? What he meant was that Shekinah, what it was called in the Old Testament, this idea of just the glory of God, Jesus was saying, that was me. That particular moment in the people of Israel, that was me. I was the one caring for them. I was the one watching out for them. I was the one making sure that even their foot didn't hit a rock. I was the one that sustained their clothing. I was the one that gave them water. I was the one that gave them food. If you want to know who it was, I am that light. In other words, what he's saying to them in another way inside of John is, I'm God. I'm God. I'm the one that when my glory came down and enveloped the tabernacle, that was me. When it enveloped the temple, that was me. I'm the one that's brought you out of darkness. I'm the one that pulled you out of all these different things. If you want to know who I am, that was me. And then he says this amazing statement after it. He says, after he says, I am the light of the world, he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. 
That's a beautiful statement. The idea of darkness here is, is, is in a, it always kind of has this idea, again, like we talked about, of this shadow of death, this wrongness, these people walking around in darkness. But the key to this is, is that only those who follow will experience no one else. See, I think what's important about this word follow is, is that he always means by this a true disciple of his. He means he's not artificial, but he's genuine. It means that Jesus is more than just, I'm more than just tagging along with him. It means that following him for who he is and, and being so taken with the amazingness of who he is that I will join myself to him and go wherever that fire goes, wherever that pillar of smoke goes, I will go. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus constantly said, unless you do this with me, you can't be my disciple. He was always crystal clear. That doesn't mean there's not failure, because he has grace and he has forgiveness all the time. But oftentimes, he would have to look at, like in Mark 9, or Matthew 19, or, or even these ones that would come to him and say, look, you can't be my disciple. Jesus wanted them to clearly understand that the only ones that experience it are them, those that follow, those that have given their life to him. And he says, if you follow me, there's no stumbling, there's no confusion, there's no fear. Come with me. It was a beautiful call. It means literally that all the world and everyone in it is desperate for Jesus, but those who follow me have found me. They found the pearl of great price. They found the treasure in the field. He's throwing out to all of them, these are the ones. But I love what he says next about these people that follow him. He says that they will have, look at down in verse 12, they will have the light of life. See, I love this. It's not just that we get to experience the light, but we will have. See, of all the things that God could have given us, he could have given us eternal life, which he does. He could have given us wonderful uh, gifts from heaven. He could have given us all kinds of things, but the greatest gift that he gives us, Jesus is standing in front of them saying, uh, you follow me, I will give you me. Huge. See, I could give you guys a lot of things, but if I said I give you me, that is the ultimate gift to hand off to somebody. Here's this gracious Jesus, this one that's come from heaven, that in my head would come down and squash us like a grape because we have so offended a holy God, and yet here he is appealing to his people saying, you can have me. Follow me. And you have me. And the beauty of it is, is you don't have to follow and find God's love. You don't have to find his holiness. You don't have to find his will. You don't have to find all those things. Is that when you find Jesus, you found everything. That's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying to this group of people that. And not only that, but that word of, of, of have has this idea that literally then you will also be transformed and made different. See, the promise of Jesus, we're going to see this later on in the book of John, is not only that we come into relationship with him, but then he makes us different. This promised Holy Spirit that he's going to give us is going to make us all new and different. And the idea is, is that now we literally become the beams of light from God. I'll never forget the one, there's a guy, and he was in the last service because I had to be careful saying his name because I didn't ask it, so I'm still not going to say his name. But I'll never forget, I get a phone call saying, hey, you know, so-and-so has got cancer. We should probably go pray for him. And so I put on my best pastor face. Walked in, concern. 
how are you doing? And he goes, fine. You are? He goes, yeah. Why wouldn't I be? You got cancer. He goes, no, I'm good. I go, what, what, what makes you good? He goes, well, I'm just sitting here actually thinking. Like, if I live, that's cool. God would heal me. That's phenomenal. He goes, but if I die, everything I've read about the scriptures, it's better. <laughs> you want to pray for me? I mean, it's just like... <laughs> The best way that I can describe him when I went into that room is he beamed. His wife was standing there next to him. They're holding hands and everything about him. I'm just like, I want that. And I'm looking at you and telling you this. Those that follow Jesus should expect it. That's why I'm constantly saying, don't be dour and sour. We know Jesus. We're good. I'm not saying we're not going to go through heartache. Boy, Jesus promises that all who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're going to have a bumpy road. The way is, is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The way is broad, and it's easy, and many find it, but they end up in destruction. In other words, I'm not saying we're not going to have it hard, and we're not going to still go through difficulties in life. But I'm telling you, I've read to the end of it, and everything I've read to the end of it means we're good. Jesus wins. New heaven. New earth. Follow Jesus. See, that's why we as Christians, and I know some people probably mock me by now by saying this, but I don't care. Smile. My goodness. Not weird. Please don't be the freak that smiles weird. We're good. But like always, verse 13 we have these guys named the Pharisees. Talk about buzzkill. It's like, note to self, don't invite the Pharisees to my next birthday. <laughs> Man, here's Jesus, and isn't it so that he just made this huge call out to all the people, come to me, follow me, you'll get light and life like you've never known. And they, you know, for me, now, as a follower of Jesus, I'm like, yay, let's go. You know, I'm just, yes. But then here comes the dour, sour people. Really. And I love what they do here. You're going to see how they're going to try to get out of what Jesus said. They're going to try to use, and you're going to see this if you've ever shared your faith with someone in the past. They use the same tactics that everybody uses all the time. And so here's the first one they say to him. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now what are they saying there? Well, what they found is, is they found what to them is a legal technicality. Inside of the law, that in order to confirm something is true, what had to happen was, is you needed to have two or three witnesses to it. And so they looked at him and said, well, you can't be telling the truth because there's only one of you. And in order for us to believe you, there has to be another. There has to be two or three. And if you've ever shared your faith before, there's always these people that have these awkward technicalities. And in the back of your head, you're going, really, dude? That's the best you got? That's why you're not going to come to the king of the universe? All right. And I love what Jesus says. He looks at him in verse 14, and he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. In other words, I came from God. I came from God. 
I'm going back to God the Father. I know where I've come from. You don't understand. If you understood where I come from, you would have never have said that. Because that might apply to humans, that that don't apply to God. He only needs one witness himself. Then he says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. He's speaking about this idea right now on the earth. I'm not judging. But the way that, the, that it's falling out of there, and especially as you see it inside of verse 16, is I'm judging no one right now. But trust me, there will come a time where I will judge. But you're thinking like the world thinks. That's your problem. They needed what took place with Nicodemus. They needed to be, Jesus talked about, you must be born again. You've got to be changed. The reason they didn't hear him is because they needed transformation, and that's what he's talking about. Verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In other words, what is he saying? You want two witnesses? I'll give you me and the Father. How's that work for you? Now, obviously, this is going to be a little weird for the Pharisees. They're like, okay, he kind of got out of that one. So look what they do in verse 19. They throw in another technicality. So they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And what they're doing there is they're slamming him. More than likely by this particular point in Jesus' life, his father, earthly father, the one that, that raised him, Joseph, was dead. In other words, they just did a low blow. Not only that, but they were mocking him because in a way they knew what he was doing. He was claiming that, that God was his unique father, which was a very rare thing for anybody to do inside of the culture at that time. And so the, what they're going to now try to do is to trap him a little bit. And their question is, where's your father? And look at Jesus' response at the, at the end of verse 19. Jesus answered, you know neither me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, what he's saying to him is, I and the Father are so united, we are so one. If you loved one of us, you would love the other. But because you don't love me, you don't love the Father. I'm not going to even answer your question. Now finally, it's kind of almost, there's this weird moment that John brings in in verse 20. It says he was talking, but it says this amazing thing, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The reality of what's taking place here, that's a miracle. Jesus and everyone knew if he showed up in Jerusalem, they would kill him. But here's Jesus now twice, once in the middle of the pouring of the water and now in the middle of the most popular place in all of Jerusalem standing there. And it says no one arrested him because his time had not yet come. Now this one's for free. I'm just going to give it to you. It's no different with you. Oftentimes I'll have people that live inside of fear and the reason that I tell you you never have to fear is because your time will not come till the Father decides your time has come. Those of us that follow Jesus live in this reality. It talks about in Psalm 139, he's hemmed us in from behind and in front. He knows the days we're going to live. He knows everything about us. So therefore, I don't know what's going to happen to me this week. For all I know, Jesus might decide, Todd, your job is done. I'll call you home. Trust me. I'm cool with that. I'll go be with him. But he will not call me home till he's done. 
That means I can go and I can be used by God in some of the craziest places on the planet. And I can tell you I will be just as safe there as I am anywhere else. Because nothing can happen to us as long as God has his arms around us. That was Paul's point in Romans 8. Is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I'm not trying to now say that we're not going to go through difficulties or sickness or any of this other stuff. I'm just telling you, you're good until God says you're done. What confidence. That means all of us in this room, we're not going to live like idiots because I don't want to put the Lord my God to the test, but I can live now not as an idiot, but with confidence. I can do things that the other world, those in the world wouldn't do because they think so much they're trying to preserve this life and save the only life they have. And I'm telling you, those of us that know Jesus, this life is a blip on the radar. True life doesn't begin until Jesus comes back. Cool. I can go where God wants me to. I can be what God intends me to be. That's what Jesus is living in and he's saturated with. He knows he will not hang on that cross before it's time. And I love now what Jesus does. I want to say that there was probably this lull and everybody's trying to figure out what to do. And in verse 21, Jesus now dives in. He says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin because where I'm going You can't come. He's laying out this principle that your major problem is sin. What separates you from God is sin. And while I can go to God because I'm his son, I am one with the Father. I came here, but I'm going back. You can't go where I'm going because you have to deal with your most important problem on this planet, which is sin, period. Unless you deal with that, you will never go to God. I love how he does this in verse, they, they sit, you can just tell them they're sitting around going, what did he just say? So in verse 22, this is what they say. The Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. See, what he's talking about there is at this particular time, the Jewish people abhorred suicide. That was why it was so tragic what Judas does when he kills himself. But the Jews believed at this particular time that those that committed suicide, what would happen to them is, is they would be placed in the worst possible place inside of Hades, far away from God in loneliness. And so what they were trying to say to Jesus is, so you're going to kill yourself so you'll get put in the worst part of Hades so we'll never see you? You're a nut. You're just like every other fanatic that's come along. You end up killing yourself. You end up doing weird things. And if you don't believe that different leaders throughout time don't commit suicide, man, look at all the ones that have. The idea is that you're crazy. So they've now come at him on a legal technicality. They've come at him on a familial kind of technicality. And now all of a sudden they're accusing him of being a nut. And I love what Jesus does. Verse 23, he said to them, You're from below, I'm from above. You're this world, I'm not of this world. He doesn't even entertain their assumption. He doesn't even go there with them. Instead, he just reminds them that you and I are different. He had to clarify that there's a difference between the two of them. He boldly told them basically what the deal was, is you're driven by the world, you're driven by materialism, you're driven by humanism, immorality, you're driven by pride, you're driven by emptiness and corruption and selfishness and phoniness. All the inconsistencies of life, that's what you're driven by, but I'm telling you, I'm not like that. I am God. I'm different than the way you all think. He says, that's what separates me from you. We're different. 
And then he says this gigantic statement in verse 24. This is just the heavyweight of all the verses that land inside of this. And he says in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, it says. Actually, that he doesn't belong there. In other words, it should just read, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, what's he saying there? Back in the Old Testament, when Moses came to God in the burning bush, he came in front of this, and it says literally he took off his sandals because it was a holy place. And it's standing in front of him. God told him what he was going to do in taking his people out of Israel. And Moses said, but who do I tell him has sent me? This is what God says to him. Tell him, I am. What? Jesus basically says, unless you believe I was the one in that burning bush, unless you believe I am Yahweh, unless you believe I am really that one, you will never, ever go where I'm going. Period. I'm not just anybody. I'm God in the flesh. And you must believe who I am and not only believe in who I am. And a lot of times we just think of this belief as just somehow this mental ascent. But live who I am and structure your life around who I am. In other words, your whole life should be transformed by the reality that you have a relationship with the God of the burning bush that Moses met. He says that's what it's going to take. The message of the gospel is all about this. It's all about this God rescuing his people, and he's done that for 2,000 years up to that particular point. He says, unless you see me as the one that spoke to Moses out of the bush, unless you see me as the one that rescued the people out of Israel, unless you see me as the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, unless you see me as the one that destroyed the earth because of sin with Noah, unless you see me as the one that came down and destroyed the Tower of Babel, unless you see me as the one that parted the Red Sea, unless you see me as the, as the one whose glory filled the tabernacle and the temple, unless you see me as the one that empowered God's people to walk around Jericho and the walls to fall down, unless you see me as the one that empowered Samson and David and Gideon and Daniel and and all those other people, unless you see me that way, you will stay in your sin. That's it. Now, as you can imagine, it must have absolutely blown them backwards. Because look what they say down in verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? <laughs> I can just imagine, I'm, what? What? Who are you? And I love what Jesus says here. And the best way that I can talk about it is it must have just been sadness to him. He says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I've been telling you this over and over and over and over and over again. I've had to deal with your forefathers for 2,000 years. I've been here. Trust me. Who am I? I've been the one of the voice crying out to you to come to me. I've opened the way for you. I've provided all kinds of means to come to me. Here I am. I'm standing in front of you even right now. I've been saying to you who I am. I mean, can you imagine for 2,000 years calling this group of people and they're still rejecting you? Man, Jesus and his human is supposed to have just been sitting there going, really? I've been the one calling out to you for years. says in verse 26, 
I have much to say about you. Trust me, I've got a lot to say about you and much to judge. Probably one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of Jesus inside of scriptures is in Luke, in Luke where he's coming up over the hill in Jerusalem in Luke 19 and he, he gets up over the hill and he sees Jerusalem and it says Jesus wept. I'm not talking about that weeping kind of, you know, blah, kind of cry. It's just that alone kind of cry where he just looked out over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you in. But he says this amazing statement to them. If you only you understood the judgment that you're about ready to face this day. This has been God's plea for years. Do I have more to say about you? Oh, do I have more to say about you? Do I have stuff to judge you with? Oh, do I have stuff to judge you with? It's been God's heart with Israel for years and years. But in verse 27, it says they didn't understand that he was speaking to them about the Father, about God the Father. I'm still here, he's saying, Colin, here I am. And I don't know where people are at in this room today, but let me just tell you something. If you're somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ, Jesus is sitting looking at you right now saying that. Here I am. Here I am. But in verse 28, he comes back to it again and he says the same thing to him, this I am statement. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, in other words, when you have crucified Jesus, when you have lifted him up, then you will know that I am, that he doesn't belong there, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In other words, there will come a day when I am lifted up, not only on the cross, but when you are standing in front of me, when the entire universe comes before the sun in judgment, there will come a point where you will look up and see the sun. No longer is the sun coming to be the Savior, but now the sun coming to be the judge, right next to the Father on his right hand. And he says, at that point, you will know. And those of you that don't know Jesus, you do not want to be on that side of history. See, it's one thing for the Pharaoh's army to be on that side of it when God the Father was protecting his people from Pharaoh's army and they were in chaos and confusion. But we know the end of that story is that when they entered into the Red Sea, it was enveloped. There was a judgment that happened upon them. And Jesus' point is you don't want to be on that side of history. You don't want to be on that side of the fire. You don't want to be on that side of the cloud. But here's where I love verse 30. We'd all be depressed if it wasn't there. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Yes! That means while Jesus is sitting there, John with the Pharisees, and they're all acting cool, all of a sudden people start going, hmm, I'm going to go with him. They believed. They went from death to life. They got out of the shadow of death and entered for the first time into this understanding of who Jesus is. We know some of the Pharisees later after Jesus Christ left, they came to know Jesus, praise God. But see, here's the point of the story. This is what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to lay out in front of the people so that they might believe, and by believing, they might have life in the Son. So how do I want to end this? If you're an unbeliever, Jesus is here. He's calling you. Your biggest problem is sin. I don't know how else to say it. It's going to take a work of God, but I'm begging right now, even as I'm talking to you, that God moves in the heart of anybody in here that doesn't know Jesus. 
I'm begging for anybody in here, even two, that somehow thinks that because they said a prayer, because they show up to church, that they're a follower of Jesus. No, that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. That just makes you someone that shows up for church. I believe there's some people in here, and you know who you are. You've been playing games. And I'm not calling you a believer or not a believer in Jesus. I'm just saying you don't want to get to the end of it and find out that you're not. And so if you want to talk today, either of those two groups, I'd love to talk with you. But I'm also fearful that some of you in this room, that you're going to now think that I'm talking to you, but I actually think there's a lot of people in here, you're just struggling with life, you're struggling with sin. You need to experience the grace of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins from the standpoint of confessing our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, some of you in this room need to quit being the people of Israel and quit being the complainers and the whiners and the people that are missing it. In the middle of all of it, you're missing. We're walking with God. I woke up this morning. I'm a child of God. I'm preaching in front of you. I'm a child of God. When I go to bed tonight, guess what I'm going to be? Child of God. I'm going to wake up the next morning. Guess what? I got a good dad. I just am so tired in my own life and in other believers' lives that we aren't people that are thrilled. You know, like when your kids are spoiled. Man, yesterday, I was, I mean, it was kind of hot, and so I grabbed my kids, and I'm like, let's go get ice cream. Now, I was expecting my kids to be, but my daughter looks at me, and she goes, what kind? <laughs> you stay at home, girl. Josiah, my boy, you know, but we, so, you know, we all get there and we get our ice cream and we come home and, and as we get there, all of a sudden it was just, but isn't that us? Aren't we spoiled little kids? What we need to do is be in the word. And when Jesus calls us to do something, try something this week. Say yes. Say yes. God, whatever. Yes. I'll do it. Man, enjoy being with God today. He opened the path through Jesus Christ so that we might enjoy him. Man, don't be that kid that never talks to your dad. Be that kid. And in the middle of all of it, and I'll just say it to this to you as plainly as I can, those of you that know Jesus, you're good. You're good. Jesus wins. He conquered sin and Satan and death and all things that ever stood in front of God. And one day he's coming back, a trumpet and a shout will announce us in and we will be ushered off into something like we can never, ever imagine. And I'm just telling you, those of you that know Jesus, the reason you don't have to be dour and sour, even in the midst of the most difficult moments, you're good. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I pray that my words today honored and pleased you. I pray that they fell on receptive hearts. God, would it be transformational for all of us. In your precious name we pray, amen.